Capital Weekly Podcast, our first of the calendar year 2024. Thrilled to be back for another year. Uh, this is Rich Eisen, the Editor-in-Chief of Capital Weekly, and uh, I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm well, Rich. I'm enjoying this brand new year. Yes, yes, it is a brand new year, and with a brand new year, uh, of course, in California, always comes brand new budget, uh, sometimes drama, sometimes elation. This year, it's the former, not the latter, and uh, (laughs) with that in mind, we're actually joined today by a great guest who is going to help us uh, discern a little bit of what it takes to to, uh, advocate for folks and for causes during some uh, particularly rough budget years. So we're joined by Christina Boss-Hamilton, a longtime legislative advocate, uh, contract lobbyist here in the Capitol. Christina, how are you doing today? I'm great, Rich. Thanks so much for inviting me, you and Tim. I appreciate that very much. Oh, well, we're thrilled to have you here. So yes, I I noted the fact that you are a lobbyist and uh, this is going to probably be a tough budget year. So Let's talk a little bit about that. And we actually, we have a lot to get to today, you know, because we want to talk a little bit about the the uh, advocate process, advocating process here during tough budget times. And it's certainly one of those. You also, though, have a new book out, which we want to talk about, and it's called Changemaker, an insider's guide to getting shit done at the California Capitol, which I love that. See, I, I actually, I love that title because... Um, I'm seeing more and more uh, groups that advocate for women, whether it's to be elected office or whatever it be, talking about the ability of women just to get get stuff done. And so I love that title. And if you know anything about books, which I do, uh, subtitles are are key. So that's a really good one here. So anyway. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was trying to be as uh, simple and to the point as possible. Mission accomplished. I like. I really like it. Well, let's let's just start with the most obvious thing. You know, what are your thoughts coming into this legislative session? I've noted a couple of times here we're going to, you know, we're all anticipating uh, some very tough budget times. I know some lawmakers have already intimated, well, we have these big reserves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Maybe just off the top, what are some of your expectations for this session, at least in getting started? And then we can talk a little bit about the book and and your thoughts there uh, on on the whole advocacy process in uh, in Sacramento. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, again, thanks for inviting me. You guys are on my my pay- playlist, so I listen to you all the time. So thank you. And as a fellow podcaster, I, I take notes and I you know follow, see what the latest is that you're talking about, and how that can inform what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, so I've been asked a lot recently about the coming budget year and and i guess it's because i have the the you know notorious not notorious but you know the pleasure of having been an advocate during the great recession which was a um you know the numbers were very similar but it was very different in a lot of ways and so i cut my teeth as a lobbyist during you know i i landed here from uh, the East Coast in 2010 and right into the middle of this, um, you know, I think in 2009, there were four special sessions in 2010, there might've been two or three. I'm not entirely clear. I don't remember, but, you know, just landing in the middle of this like horrific 
situation that the state was in, um, not being too familiar with the state, you know, and especially with <laughs> what I was advocating on, but I, 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 you know, they throw you in the pool and you just start swimming. So having come out of those terrible years, I guess it gives me a particular insight on, you know, how it was like back then and, and what that might mean for today. And, you know, I, I think it's very important that we don't assume that it's the same thing, that there's similarities, of course, and it's not a good thing. I mean, I don't think anyone's pretending this is great or that this is just going to blow over. And, you know, like last year, we were able to, they were able to fill the deficit without making reductions. I, I think folks have a much more sober analysis that this year is going to be extremely difficult. Um, but I keep pointing back to, well, structurally, the state is in a different position um, since that time. The voters passed Prop 25, which effectively, you know, made the big five into the big three. And for folks who don't know what that means, um, prior to Prop 25, it was a super majority uh, vote threshold to pass the state budget, which meant that the minority leaders had a say because they had the votes that were needed, part of the votes that were needed. And so when it became a majority vote budget in Prop 25, then it effectively reduced it to the majority party because you only needed 50 percent of the votes. And then the majority party kind of became the supermajority party. So I suppose in the end, it didn't really didn't make too much of a difference. But um, in terms of well, that and the other thing that Prop 25 did was establish the um, penalty that they would lose a day's pay for every day that the budget was not passed. Um, by the constitutional deadline. And uh, that made a really big difference in terms of these negotiations going on and on and on. And I, you know, I've had people tell me, especially in 2009, it was like the budget was always always happening, right? Um, so I want to say those two major structural changes made a, have made a big difference, um, in at least in the sense that when you have less people you're negotiating between, it's a lot easier to get to agreement and you don't have holdouts, right? Who who will say no unless, you know, that, you know, are on different sides and want to achieve different goals. And that makes negotiations much, much more difficult. Now, what's interesting is your background there, having that experience during the Great Recession sort of gives you a leg up over the sitting legislators who don't. I just did the math yesterday. Um, I went through my red book and and some um, oh my gosh, somebody tweeted at me that I that their number was a little bit different than mine, but I came up with 17 members. Oh, okay. Who were around back then. So who either were elected in 2008, 2010, or 2012, because I, I considered 2012 another horrific. I mean, you could even argue probably went all the way to 2014, really, but yeah, 17 members were in office. Well, we need to we need to run this past Alex Bassard because of yeah. any. Well, okay, knows. it was Alex. <laughs> there we go. Of course, <laughs> of course it was. You know, Alex Bassard is like he's like the the ghost. He's always like the the ghost in the corner of this podcast because his name comes up basically every time. But but yeah, I mean, there's all these legislators that have never never seen a deficit. Yes, and it's going to be uncharted territory for them. And so not only have never seen a deficit, have only seen surplus. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really key point here, Christina, because 
You know, I think one of the things that most people will agree with that has been a detriment to term limits is the loss of institutional memory. Now, there's good points to that and there's bad points to that, but certainly one of them, and we, and we talk about this a lot, is the loss of um, some of the collegiality, you know, and the and the need to get along with the other side and find compromise. And of course, that's changed a lot for a number of reasons, one of which is, you know, as the Democrats have become a supermajority but even within the Democrats, they're not a monolith. So we know there, there's a lot of different perspectives within the supermajority. Right. But the one thing they share, as you noted, very, very, very few of them have any concept of what it is like to operate under these conditions. And so how much does that change the equation for advocates like you, who, and especially for those who are advocating you know, for those who tend to be on the lower end of the, of the economic scale in our society? Right. Well, you know, um, Senator Ashby actually tweeted uh, tweeted in response to me yesterday or the day before that the that even though some of the legislators weren't in state office, they were in local office and they were experiencing the same thing, but from the local government perspective, which I think is a really good point, because, you know, that is even you could say more what's the word I'm looking for? Traumatic, because, you know, city government, it's like you're literally in front of the people. Um, but yeah, I mean, at least from a state perspective, there's, so I think it comes out to 15%. And, you know, I, I've never been a member. I can't speak to what that feels like. I can simply tell you as an advocate, the experience was very traumatic, um, especially in the human services space. So human services traditionally has been funneled through budget sub- one on the assembly side, although this year the speaker separated uh, health and human services, they're now separate subs, um, but it always traditionally was through sub one and then on the Senate side, sub three. And so those committee hearings were just wretched experiences of, you know, people coming and expressing that, you know, this was life and death to them, these these proposed cuts to SSI, to um, CalFresh, to CalWorks, to IHSS, to all of these programs. And, you know, it, it, it was very traumatic. And I mean, and I'm, I should be very clear, it was obviously, uh, to me as an observer, not as traumatic as to the people for whom this was affecting. But I think as a legislator, that had to have been, I don't know, one of those moments of like, wow, you know, I'm I'm making these decisions that just ha that have life or death repercussions, and I I never envied those members that were sitting in those positions, um, negotiating with the governor, you know, leaders, but especially the subcommittee chairs because they saw the people. You know, I think to a degree you can be a little bit disengaged in Sacramento, you know, especially if you don't have too much of a presence in your district, right? You kind of just do your Sacramento stuff, you know, to see people's faces and, and, you know, have old, you know, older folks, people with disabilities, children talking about like, I'm not going to eat now because this, this program is being reduced or going away. I mean, that's some serious stuff. I, I think that's that kind of trial by fire is what I would hope. I, I hope people don't have to go through because it was a terrible experience. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, like I say, advocacy in this in this kind of an environment. Um, 
I met, I mentioned the book Change Maker: An Insider's Guide to Getting Shit Done at the California Capitol. And you know, I, I, I love this. It's not a, it's not a thick, heavy book. This is not a textbook. So this is really a, a very direct how-to. Uh, you know, if you're if you're somebody who's been around the Capitol for a long time, this is probably very, very basic stuff that you've you've dealt with for a long time. But that's not who a lot of the folks are that are dealing with the kinds of problems you're talking about. That's right. Um, that's a right. lot of folks have no idea how right. to address a, a grievance with their government and maybe don't even understand the full rights of grievance with government. So a, a, a really uh, forward and direct, uh, you know, how to, I think, could, is going to be really, really helpful to a lot of people. And, and as I went through this, I thought, you know, this could also be really helpful to, to young journalists, because a lot of times we don't understand how the system <laughs> young works staffers, either. Young no. advocates, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So talk a little bit, if you would, about, you know, what was the impetus for the book, what you hope to get across, you know, how did you decide not just the information that's in the book, but how you wanted to present and how much information you wanted to present. In the oh, book. that's a good so my question. My understanding is, you know, you've got yeah. more coming too. So, so you give us the 411 here. Okay. Yeah. So the book is the direct product of all the years that I worked um, at UDW, the United Domestic Workers. I was started as a policy person and then I became the legislative director for the last six years that I was there. And it it really is an outgrowth of my experience doing that work. And then subsequent to that, the, you know, just, I've always sort of been in the very much in the like grassroots arena. And before that, you know, I, I born and raised in the labor movement. So I have always, you know, been very in, inclined to, to be where the workers are at. And one of my favorite things that I would do at the union was, so I was um, in base in Sacramento, we had members all around the state and we would regularly bring them to the Capitol, like everybody else to do lobby days, to do, you know, testify at policy committee hearings, budget committee hearings, especially during these terrible times. Right. And um, that experience of sort of being the mediator or not mediator, but the person who kind of interpreted what was happening at the Capitol for those workers. It gave me a, like, it had that job satisfaction with that, that I didn't have with as much with anything else, because I felt like people could see how the puzzle pieces start fitting together and the role that they played in, in the puzzle. And, you know, walking with members into the Capitol and just seeing like, this intimidation and this overwhelming because you know the capital is very it's very profound and and it's like grandeur and there's so solemn and all the things right and you if you're not used to that it's like what the heck is this you know and for working class folks like this stuff this isn't their normal every day and and it's a world that they don't necessarily engage with too frequently and so sort of being playing that role of interpreting like hey this is actually what's happening right now they're just doing this or whatever and like kind of helping folks feel like comfortable like yeah this is your listen this is the people's house and you're the people you belong here just as much as any of these other people running around in very expensive suits in fact you probably belong here more than them well you and, know i have i have to say having gone over to the capitol many times when there is a lobby day going on and you'll see people in matching shirts 
you know, a lot of the labor unions will do that. They'll come in. And it's really cool to see these people. And you can tell some of them have never been there before because they're wide eyed and they're looking around and they're getting some guidance from someone like you who's kind of taking them mm -hmm. in. But it's really cool to see. And it's like it is direct democracy and it's how everything yes. is supposed to yes. work. Uh, yes. in, a, in theory. And it's like, you know, if you spend much time, well, not so much in the capital now, it'd be in the swing space, but you go over there and like when when there's in session, you'll see that. And it's actually a really cool thing, I think, for me. I agree. And that's what made me feel happy. Like I knew what I was doing, right? Like this is why I was doing what I was doing was at the end of those days, you know, because that experience is a transformation for a lot of these folks. It's It's like, oh, someone heard me, you know, government is not this, you know, mysterious entity thing that it, that is over there that like happens without with or without me it's this entity right but seeing like oh i have a role to play too i have an important story to tell too that is going to make a difference hopefully in the decision these folks make that's a transformation and that that like that removed me every time and so i always felt like that is something everybody needs is like we need to bring uh, we need to sh to to i like to call it crash the gates of what has traditionally kept the capital away from everyday people um and which honestly has led to this situation where people don't trust government you know like conspiracy theories flourish when you don't know what the hell is happening and so someone's telling you something crazy it makes sense because what do you know right Government is this thing over there. And all I know is that I send taxes once a year or whatever, right? So just, it's a good thing for for the, the government. It's a good thing for people. It's a good thing for democracy when these things are allowed to happen. That is what kind of fostered in me. We need to get this information out there and accessible in, in ways that people can actually read and digest and that won't be overwhelming to them. Before you leave that though, I want, I, I want you to address one thing, which is, you explain to people how to crash the gate, but the big thing is which great gate to even crash. And you and I have talked about this before. It, you know, it does not do an advocate any good whatsoever to, to, you know, spend all their time and resources advocating to the wrong lawmaker or the wrong committee or the yes. wrong chamber. Yes. I mean, it seems so basic. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's, that that's the story I was going to tell you that really, really hit me hard. I had a member tell me, we were talking about this, and he said, I have people come and lobby me on my own bills. And I was like, well, that's a big, <laughs> speaking of wasting your time, right? And I, it's that level of like, we've got to make this information more open. Like folks, you know, because we don't want them wasting their time, like you just said. Oh, can you imagine how great they felt like that lawmaker agreed with me so much? <laughs> well, if any, what he said is, if anything, I was like, I'm with you. I, I'm with you. How can I help you? You should be asking me how I can help you versus telling me, you know, why I should vote for it. I'm with you already. Yeah, yeah. So and I'm not saying it to demean anybody or to like suggest that people are stupid or anything like that. I just think that's how complicated it is. Um, you don't just show up, you're not remembering fifth grade social studies and, and like knowing how this stuff intuitively works. You know, and the reality is when most people think of government, they think of federal, the federal government, because that's really what's in the newspaper. That's what's on the news. 
excuse me, on the news. Um, if you ask most people to identify their state senator or their assembly member, I'm going to suspect 90% of them wouldn't be able to do that. I would say 90% might actually be low. Low. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like to me, this is about empowering everyday voices, people who don't traditionally get heard, right? Like the, the people that it's easy to run railroad over when it comes to budget deficits, because you don't have to see them or hear them. And, but they're the ones that live through the consequences of those policy choices. And we have to make it easier for those people to participate in the, the at least one way that I hope I can contribute is just explaining some of this stuff and not only just explaining it, but like giving a little bit of like real life experience too. That was my goal. Well, and so you, are, you wrote the book obviously to do that, but you also have a podcast that has yes. also gives people tools and kind of opens the, you know, gives a peek behind the curtain. Can you talk about yes. that a little bit? Yeah. So that's the blueprint for California advocates and it's on any um, podcast player. It's also on YouTube uh, that, that was the, the first thing. Yeah. The first thing was the podcast. And it's kind of funny because people are like, why do you do that? There was self-interest. I'll be very clear. It was January, 2021 when I launched my practice after I left the union and there was nobody at the Capitol. <laughs> there was nobody anywhere. And I very rapidly realized that I needed to network to get business and I needed to create that because there wasn't an actual physical way I needed to do it online. And so the podcast was really like, it was an outgrowth of this is stuff that I was on the normal already caring about. And, you know, I always kind of gave people advice and sort of put my neck out there more often than not to help folks. Um, but the podcast became like, well, this is cool because I have a, this is a labor of love and I need to get myself out there. So, yeah. And it wound up being a huge success. It's, it's like, the greatest thing ever for me. Yeah, podcasting. Uh, it, it feels like in this day and age, everybody has a podcast, but not everybody has a good podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, did you yeah. find it to be a lot more work than you uh, originally thought it was going to be? Oh my gosh, yes. It, it, it's like it can be a part-time job. It's so much work. In the beginning, I put a lot, a lot, a lot of hours into it because, again, I was growing my business. Um, a lot of late nights and weekends. Then I was able to sort of outsource some of the, you know, production part of it, but it's still a lot of work because, you know, you can't just hire someone and be like, here, edit this transcript. And they're going to know same with you guys. Like they're not going to know what your audience finds interesting, you know? So like to a degree, I have to still be super into it. Um, I, but I really love it. And what I found was um, this, you know, group of people for whom this information didn't exist. I mean, it's the same with your, podcast too in a way you're we're speaking to this niche audience that is a very important group of people right like these are people who influence policy in the fourth largest fifth largest economy in the world and there's not a lot of content out there for this population it's almost like uh an analog industry and and we we are just like one or two little outliers trying to you know merge it with new technology and and bring it into like more commonplace well, and uh, I mean, I think the other reality of that, too, is there could be 100 podcasts about the California Capitol and there might be 100 different perspectives on how it's all working. Uh, right. This is a, this is a very unique environment. I, I will yes. say that. And and, you know, maybe to just to put a little bit of a bow on all of this, you know, you've been doing this a long time. 
as you noted, you started in some pretty rough times. You've seen better times. Um, and I think about it, you know, I, I wrote my master's thesis on the on the recall that, uh, you know, gave us Governor Schwarzenegger. So I feel like I, I have some simpatico with you here, right? I remember going through all that stuff very distinctly. Um, does anything feel different this time around? Um, do you have expectations this year or more, maybe more or less hope than you normally do for the kind of clients you represent in a year like this? I mean, every year is its own. What, what do you think about this one going forward? Yeah, good question. I do feel not as hopeless as I would have, or I did before, I should say, for several reasons. A, the structural differences that we talked about before, um, B, because we have a whole new set of lawmakers. And I know for a fact there are many for who ran for office based on the experiences in their community coming out of the Great Recession. So people who saw firsthand what cuts and reductions looked like um, for their schools and their, you know, their their elders and, and uh, vulnerable folks in their communities who then wanted to run for office to make different decisions. So I think we have um, a different mindset, I want to say, among a lot of the newer members. And, you know, and you have a new new leadership and how people respond to the to these. If the governor proposes reductions, how the legislature respond, I don't think anybody knows. And that is different because this isn't like, oh, they've been doing this for a couple of years. Like they might, you know, put their foot down. That's not going to happen. We don't want to do it that way. And so I think that is what creates a more of a question mark. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is, you know, we have, you know, the cash situation is different. There's many, many billion dollars in the reserve. I think the governor doesn't want to do cuts. I think a lot of lessons were learned based on the horror of the Great Recession and what that meant for um, working class and low income folks. So I think a lot of factors at play that are intentionally not wanting to recreate that time period. Now, does that mean it's not going to happen? No, not necessarily, but I think it's caused to have a little bit of a more optimistic worldview. Hey, talk to me after January 10th and then I'll be crying and then we'll all say it was for naught and I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> well, um, one last thing I guess I, I, I want to touch on from your book, because I think this is really important. Um, one of the things that you note, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, well in the book, and again, this is a this is a nice tight handbook, but it's so important to remember things that you note here, which is, of course, identifying the correct lawmakers and everything, but talking about respecting the process, sending a thank you note or an email, following up, um, you know, we forget politics feels like it has become so nasty and so controversial and so, um, you know, confrontational, maybe it's more accurate word. Um, I love the fact that you emphasize, you know, it, it's the old saw, you know, you get a lot more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And right. uh, these are just human beings like everybody else with egos and hurt, you know, easily hurt feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And they're very busy. And uh, I think everybody wants you know, one of the things that bugs me, it really does bug me, was when you, you talk about how people all hate government, and it's true, I've run into it all the time, and I always, 
will ask people, well, how engaged are you, you know, with your government? And I usually get, you know, something that would indicate not very much at all. So yeah. my question is, well, then how do you really know? You Everybody's a crook. Everybody's this, everybody's that. Well, sure, right, the guy right, you right. don't like is right. always one you think, like, your guy is always great. He's, he's exactly. perfect. But at right. the end of the day, you know, I think everybody would, would benefit uh, greatly from some of the things you have in your book, just because it's such common sense and it's such human dignity and decency, regardless of what side of the aisle you are on or what you're advocating for. So kudos you, for that. Well, I, I, I had a brilliant mentorship um, in, in was taught very much in the old school way of doing things, which is process, right? Respect the process, um, respect the decorum of the building, and, you know, all, all the things, right? Like, you know, it's not the staff's fault. Like screaming at them isn't going to make anybody feel better. Um, and that at the end of the day, you know, it's it's accountability for the members, but that doesn't mean you have to be hostile necessarily or like create massive conflict. You want to hold people accountable so that you get things done, but that doesn't mean you you have to, I don't know, become a monster to do that. And I also think people don't want to work with you when you do that. And that's part of a problem too, like you just said, right? Yeah. Right. But it's about transparency ultimately, because I mean, especially if you're on Twitter, right? It's so easy to screenshot a vote count. I mean, I see this all the time, right? California just voted to let pedophiles, you know, go into your kid's bedroom at night. Like, it's like so preposterous, right? And like, then they'll like do, you know, they'll screenshot a vote count or, the, or they'll this teeny little piece of a, a member's floor speech and it's like well actually here's the archive you can listen to the whole damn thing you'll see that that's not what they were talking about they were talking about this and it's like that's why we're in this situation too is like it's easy to be bamboozled now am i saying people don't have any personal responsibility to do their freaking fact checking before they start retweeting nonsense of course yes definitely but i don't know can when you have members doing it, it's the worst. But if we can try to at least break down some of these barriers to make it be like, look, it's not a conspiracy. You can see it all for yourself. Hey, we can't let you go before finding out where people can get your book and talking about your upcoming book signing. Ah, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for reeling me in, Tim, because I can just go the hell off if you want me to. Well, if you're going to tell us which members are tweeting bullshit, you can just go, just tell us. Uh, yeah, that's... Same names. We're, we're that, that'll be it. another day for another interview. <laughs> yeah, so people can buy the book um, online at avhadvocacy.com forward slash changemaker. And you can also purchase it at Capital Books on K. And in fact, I am having a book signing on january 23rd 4:30 to 6 30 so i would love if folks came out for that and if you go on my website you can rsvp and then i also want to announce because i'm so just thrilled to pieces that i will be doing um, a book signing at manny's in san francisco on february 22nd at 6 30 and i will also have that link on my website to rsvp um, that is just like tickling me. I, I, I can't even, I, I'm pinching myself because I'm so excited. All I've ever done is read about Manny's and how cool it is. So this is like such a cool deal for me. Well, uh, Christina, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Best thank of you. luck. With the book. It's a, it's a great, 
I wish we were actually on video because I'd hold it up and show people. Can my copy here? I uh, really <laughs> you appreciate You can just it. describe it. <laughs> yeah, so I'll just, well, just look for the words change maker. That, that, that'll that get you where you're going and go online and, and buy it. I, I highly recommend it. If you want to learn something about how the capital works and uh, certainly from a advocacy perspective, I think you could do a lot worse than this one. So Christina, uh, Boss Hamilton, that. thanks a lot. Well, thanks again to Christina Boss Hamilton for coming on and talking to us a little bit about advocacy here in this uh, tough budget year. Uh, but it's now time for our favorite part of the show every week, which is, of course, who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Uh, Tim, it's early. We're only in the first week of January, so nobody's really had a chance to screw up too bad yet, but... We actually do have a candidate, don't we? Yes. Uh, although, as you noted, this is not really a, a real dramatic week. I, you know, we, we like when somebody really puts their foot in the fire. And this week, you know, I'd say Pamela Price is not having a great week. But, you know, in, in a normal week, I would think this would barely even count. Well, very true. And for those who are unaware, so um, Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price uh, this week, a uh, judge barred her from prosecuting uh, a former prosecutor there in her office who has become one of her most vocal critics and, and political rivals to some extent. He's not running against her or anything, but he has certainly made it clear that he would like to see her uh, removed from office. Uh, this is a convoluted story, which I will not try to discern too deeply for anybody. You can go read about it in the East Bay Times. It's quite quite detailed there. But at the end of the day, he was charged with a misdemeanor for, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact deal. Apparently, he spoke out against somebody after a conviction. There was a fairly obscure law that he was able to be then charged with. And so uh, that is what is happening. But the crux of this particular case is that uh, a judge has ruled that essentially she has made enough uh, statements, biased statements toward him that uh, she needs to be completely uh, removed from the case. And in that manner, the case has been handed off now to the attorney general's office. So her office will not be allowed to prosecute it at all, which certainly based on the listing of things that she has said about this person, uh, it would seem probably the right decision uh, to have been made. Um, either way, it can't be good for her because I think she, <laughs> based on what she was saying, she was probably looking forward to seeing him prosecuted by her office. But, uh, you know, another one of those things in this office that has become, you know, I mean, let's be honest, her office has become a very controversial one here in California. Uh, she's facing a recall herself. So uh, one more one more giant log to throw on the fire that has become the Alameda County Prosecutor's Office. Long story short, not our most dramatic. This is not a Kevin McCarthy level <laughs> worst week, but, uh, you know, a worst week nonetheless. Well, and on one, I hope, final Kevin McCarthy note for worst week, uh, you may have seen this. You know, his, his first week of quote-unquote freedom before he starts whatever his next venture is going to be, he got called for jury duty. So there you go. <laughs> he, you know, honestly, he, he, having served on jury duty, he may have gotten the worst week, honestly. So, 
Well, you're going <laughs> to you know, actually, you know, I have to say, that, Kevin, that's how it is. You're not getting out of it that early, that easy. We, you know, we uh, we took a few weeks off over the holidays and didn't have work week. And I really thought that we were going to have something with this Vince Fong uh, issue where Vince Fong was uh, on the ballot twice and, you know, removed the ballot altogether. Now he seems to be back on the ballot. And so I thought that we would have somebody would get that. But just by the luck of the week's passing, uh, neither he nor uh, nor the folks running against him had the worst week. But he may that may be revisited. I'm still not 100% sure we're done with that issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, maybe you could make an argument that Shirley Weber had the worst week. Um, boy, it's been a it has been a tough few years for all public officials around elections, um, local governance, anything to do with with elections and, and the administration of election law. Uh, again, I'm not going to weigh in on the right or wrong of this here. I will just say um, I do not envy anybody who is in that position. So let's we'll, we'll make her a sub worst week just simply because she had the task of having to deal with this and now is going to have to continue dealing with it because it sounds like she's going to appeal the the ruling and so uh we'll see what happens, right? You know, lawyers will never be out of work. That's the lesson I'm taking away from this. Oh my goodness, no. Not not in our modern world are they? They're never going to be out of work. I mean, uh I don't know, Tim, if we if we were smarter, maybe if we, and 40 years younger each, we'd go to law school and and uh, set ourselves up for life. But but um, I don't know. That's no, I... like jury, jury duty for eternity to me. <laughs> yeah, I thought about it at one point way early in my life and I'm, I'm I didn't do it. And no offense to any of my legal friends out there. I have many, but uh, I don't envy you your jobs either. So uh, you probably don't envy mine either. So it's a fair trade. So anyway. Well, it was a great show. Uh, we're looking forward to next week and we'll uh, we will see all of you next time. All right. Thanks, Rich. And we will talk to everybody next week. Hey, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't already gone on to your favorite podcast platform and given us a review, uh, that would be great because that's how people find out about the show. And uh, of course, if you hate us, maybe don't give us a review. But if you like the show, maybe uh, go on to your platform provider, give us a review and, and that'll help people... Uh, We'll, we'll sort of be gaming the algorithm and it'll drive us up in the search results. So we're, we're good with gaming the algorithm if it's in our favor. We're not above that, are we, Tim? I don't know. You know, frankly, I, I'm not a digital native. So I'm sure there's probably like some 22 year old who knows exactly how to make this all pop. And uh, it ain't me. I'm right. just trying to figure out how Google uh, Google search works. I fear, I feel you on that one. Absolutely. So anyway, sure. till next time. See you, Rich. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.